athletic competition. It can easily be broken down into two parts. The minutes or hours it takes to complete the event. Then weeks, months, and years of joy or heartbreak. Finally, the decades to analyze and debate it. From the press box to press row, Donald Ware will break it all down for you with an in-depth look at historically black college athletics, as well as the biggest news stories and newsmakers of the day. It's time to talk the talk with those who walk the walk. From the press box to press row, here's your host, Donald Ware. I think very deeply. In about four seconds, a teacher will begin to speak. I think very deeply. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me on another edition of the program. Listen, we've got so much to get to today. We've got NBA. We want to talk some NFL draft. We want to kind of sum up the draft. Of course, on last week, the draft was still going on when the show came on. So we want to do that. You know, you, you talk about the NBA. You talk about NBA playoffs. You look at Golden State and the Grizzlies. What an interesting this is we are tied at one game apiece game three on saturday in san francisco what a series this is does it matter that dylan brooks how or i shouldn't say that how much of a factor is it that dylan brooks will has been suspended for one game because of the flagrant not only the flagrant two foul he got in game two i mean it was i, I think I'm not, you know, what he did to Gary Payton. And now Gary Payton is going to miss some, or Gary Payton III, I should say more specifically, is going to miss some time. I, How much of a, of a, I mean, it's, of course, anytime someone gets injured in their part of your rotation, it is serious. But I also look at the weapons that Golden State has. And I, you know, Gary Payton III is, is definitely a good player, but it may it's not like if they lose them, they don't have a chance in the series. And listen, game one could have gone to Memphis, yet for John Morant not being able to finish that layup. It was a tough shot. I hear everybody talk about how Clay Thompson played some good defense on that. Yeah, the defense wasn't bad, but at the end of the day, Morant missed that shot, and it's a shot he's made many, many times over his career. He just didn't get it done that day. Otherwise, we could be looking at a 2-0 series in favor of the Grizzlies, who have played phenomenally. I mean, they've really played well. I didn't know that or if the Grizzlies would play as well because I looked at Minnesota. We talked with Mike Wallace, senior editor of Grind City Media, on last week about this. I mean, I, I, I think the Timberwolves have a good team, right? But I mean, I'm not going to mistake the Timberwolves for one of the elite teams in the NBA, much like the Grizzlies played, especially down the stretch. The Grizzlies vaulted because of their play down the stretch, vaulted to that number two spot. That was a spot that Golden State had held for quite some time. Now we understand and know that Steph Curry was out for the last, what, uh, last quite a bit of the, the the last part of the regular season, and ultimately he's come back and, 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 and really played well. But 
I mean, that's a series that uh, could go either way. Really, game three, obviously, is going to be pivotal. I look at uh, the other Saturday series between the Celtics and the Bucks. I mean, the way that the Bucks put it on the Celtics in game one, right? And I'm like, man, the Bucks look unbeatable because to me, everybody talked about how great the Celtics defense is. And the Celtics defense definitely is is great. I mean, what the Celtics were able to do to Kevin Durant and the Nets, I mean, that was that was special. But now you got to play the Celtics a little bit different or a lot different actually than you ultimately play the Bucks and specifically Giannis Antetokounmpo. Yes, I realize Chris Middleton's not there, but I just felt like when you look at Drew Holiday and how he's really stepped up this year, I ultimately look at Bobby Portis and the way he's played. Brooke Lopez is back. And again, I look at game one, I'm like, what a blowout. And I did not see the Celtics winning game two, but the Celtics are resilient. Jason Tatum, Brown, and and by the way, I think it must be noted, and it, it's very important to look at the fact that the Celtics won game two, not only handily, but without Marcus Smart, who is the heart and soul of that Celtics team. So we've got those matchups in the NBA that we can talk a little bit more about. We can we can talk about uh, the the matchups where. You have the Suns that have the lead over the Dallas Mavericks. I mean, for the Mavericks to even have gotten to this point um, is a little bit surprising. But then again, maybe not being able to beat the Jazz ultimately. And then I look at Miami and Philly. You knew it was going to be an uphill battle for the 76ers without Joel Embiid. But isn't this why the 76ers, not not that, this is not why the 76ers went out and got Joel Embiid, but Again, I said it when the 76ers and the Nets made the trade. I didn't think that James Harden would ever win an NBA championship because of the way he's forced himself out of situations. Now, you can look at that Brooklyn situation and, yeah, I mean, I I, I can, I still don't agree with what he did, but I can understand in part if, you know, Kyrie's not totally on board. You don't know what that looks like. But you're a compliment. If you're James Harden at this stage in your career, and at, well, I should say in, in this stage in terms of the way that he's playing, he's a complimentary player. He's not a star. You know, he's not a guy that's going to get you over the top. The 76ers have really needed James Harden in this series without Embiid, and Harden has not stepped up. You look at Maxi's, he's done well. Even Tobias Harris has kind of stepped up a little bit, but you need a James, you need James Harden from three, four years ago. And James Harden just isn't that guy. Thus, the 76ers in the predicament that the 76ers are in. And so, you know, we'll see ultimately what happens. But I like the way the Heat. I mean, you gotta like the way the Heat is playing, right? Like, I mean, you know, Tyler Hero and I mean Butler and bam. I mean, these guys are just getting it. And by the way, you look at Oladipo, who's really struggled with injuries the last couple of years. He's looked good in this series. So a lot to talk about with respect to the NBA. 
NBA today on the program. We can talk some NFL draft today on the program. How did your team ultimately do? I want to know how you thought your team ultimately did. We asked the question last week, but the draft wasn't over as of last week. And I want to know how you felt like your team ultimately did in the NFL draft. I mean, if I have to talk about the Washington football team, right? Like I think the Washington football team um, did a really, a, a really good job. I mean, I, I, I mean, if I'm honest, I mean, I probably was uh, a little bit surprised by the first round pick in terms of Dotson. I didn't really see that coming in, but you know, I, I know that every, and the saints picked up the, the wide receiver and the, the saints and the Washington football team traded picks and uh, the Saints ultimately got the kid out of out of Ohio State, the wide receiver out of Ohio State, where a lot of f- folks thought that maybe the Washington Commanders would have ultimately picked him up. But they decided to go with Dotson out of Penn State. And I, I look at what I'm hearing about him. I didn't know much about him. And I, I don't know. It looks like, a, looks like it could be a decent pick. I also look at... The other picks, because remember, with the Washington Commanders trading back, they were ultimately able to get up into the second round and able to pick up, uh, you know, and get multiple picks. So I thought that uh, was a really good move and able to pick up some 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 depth. The Commanders definitely needed some depth on the offensive line. Was able to do that. <laughs> it seems like. You know, you look at the commanders and the commanders really have this thing about players from Alabama. They go out and get the Mathis kid, the defensive tackle from Alabama, because really the commanders needed some some depth on that offensive line because they lost a couple of guys on the offensive line. Then you go out and get another running back, Brian Robinson, also from Alabama in the third round. I thought that this was a good move. Uh, because now you you have, in essence, four running backs, but you have two full-time guys um, that can really uh, tote the rock. And, and a guy like Robinson gives Gibson a bit of a spell. I really think, and I've watched Gibson play, Antonio Gibson, and I really think he's one of the, he's going to have a breakout year. Not a, not He's had two good seasons, a rookie year two years ago, and then last year, uh, had a good season. I think he had a thousand yard season last year as well. But I think you're going to see this guy really have a breakout season. I just like the way that he runs the ball, the rate, the way that he moves. He's a converted wide receiver, and so I like uh, that pick as well. But I think the pick that most people are talking about is Sam Howell out of North Carolina. Now, and what I do like from what I'm hearing is, hey, you look at Howell. And you look at his 2021 season, had a better 2020 season, most would say, plus the numbers would bear that out. But like a lot of people have said, and I've heard that, listen, Howell didn't have the weapons. He didn't have the offensive line. And Carolina, as the Tar Heels football team, sort of trying to find its way, especially offensively, which is why you saw where Carolina was a top five pick to start the season, or top 10 at least to start the season, and, and did not end up that way. Actually didn't have a good season really uh, at all, especially compared to where a lot of people thought the season was going to be. Carson Wentz is your guy. Taylor Heineke is your backup. 
You let Howell develop and see what ultimately happens. And by the way, you're getting a quarterback of that stature in the fifth round. So I like what the commanders did. Your thoughts. What did your team do? I want to hear from you in terms of what you thought your team did. Hit me up via Twitter at box to row B-O-X-T-O-R-O-W. You've got box to row locked on ESPNU Radio on Sirius XM. I am your host, Donald, where we're going to table the NBA and NFL discussion. This is, after all, ESPNU Radio on Sirius XM. So with that being said, we're going to talk with Alabama State head baseball coach Jose Vasquez. The Hornets and Florida A&M have a big-time series, a big-time three-game series, and the SWAC's Eastern Division lead is on the line, and Alabama State is the number one team in all of black college baseball via the blackcollegebaseball.com poll. So again, Jose Vasquez, the head baseball coach at Alabama State, going to join us on the program. Plus, I'm going to have some thoughts on the NFL draft as it relates to HBCU players. And I'm going to give you some thoughts. The MEAC has sent out another release stating that all eight schools in the MEAC are united, calling themselves the Elite Eight. So we're going to discuss that also. As Box to Row on ESPNU Radio on Sirius XM rolls on. The old renaissance is the new renaissance. Standing on tradition while embracing the spirit of distinction. This is the Harlem Brewing Company. Uniquely crafted beer brewed to deliver a taste, a sound, and a feeling that can only be described in one way. Harlem style. So come and take a trip on the A-Train with our Harlem Sugar Hill Golden Ale and our Harlem Renaissance with beer, the neighborhood original. Sponsored by Harlem Beer Distributing North Carolina. For more information, log on to their website at harlembeernc.com. Hey, Bugsy, you hear the news about Vinny? Yeah, it's a real shame he owed money to the IRS and they finally cut up with him. Just like Al Capone. If the IRS can get to Capone, imagine what they can do to little old Vinny, huh? Poor cat, he was on top of the world, then bada-boom, bada-bing. What Vinny needs now is an offer he can't refuse. Hey, you got a tax problem? Does the IRS claim you owe them a bunch of dough? They can get you too. So call the tax relief line now and learn if you qualify to negotiate your $10,000 plus IRS tax debt for up to a 75% savings. Don't be like Al or Vinny and get busted. Make this free call now. Learn how you may be able to pay the IRS less. Call now. 888-789-5043. 888-789-5043 Now back to From the Press Box to Press Row with Donald Ware on ESPNU Radio on Sirius XM. Donald Ware, Donald Ware, Donald Ware. Just four players taken in the National Football League draft after an embarrassingly low zero players were taken. You got to go all the way back to 19, 
50. The first black player in the NFL was Paul Tank Younger running back out of Grambling. And there and the first player that was drafted, Robert Stonewall Jackson out of A&T. Can't remember if that was 50 or 51. You never had zero players that were taken. Okay. And but everything, a lot of what I've read is almost like a celebration that there were four players taken from HBCUs. And while four is more than zero, I mean, why are we celebrating? It feels like, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I feel like this is something that we should be happy about because four players were taken, right? I get it. No players taken last year, four taken this year. You can look at it. As a sign of progress, you can look at it, excuse me, that way. But I don't look at it that way at all because, A, this should have it should have never been this type of situation. Now, teams should pick who teams want to pick. The problem that I have, and I wrote a piece about this. As a matter of fact, you can read the piece on BoxToRow.com. In the title of the piece, Cheap Labor. Why the NFL prefers to sign HBCU players as free agents. The problem that I have is that when you look at these rosters, if you look at the rosters from last year and you look at specifically opening day, the opening day roster, close to 40% of the HBCU players that were on opening rosters last year were free agent signees. So obviously... If you even you can play, they they know you can play. The National Football League just prefers not to draft HBCU players, and I'm going to tell you why. First, we got to say congratulations to Fayetteville State's cornerback Joshua Williams, who was the first HBCU player taken off the board. Not until the fourth round. I think he's better than a fourth round player, and I think he's going to show that. I mean, you can look at the history of the National Football League and low-round draft picks. Uh, you can look at players that weren't even drafted that went on, and, and I'm talking specifically from HBCUs, that went on to have Hall of Fame careers. I mean, you can look at a Willie Brown out of Grambling, played for, uh, played for the Raiders, uh, was one of the great defensive backs to ever play the game, wasn't even drafted, went on. So we understand that that can happen. Right, but I think a guy like a Joshua Williams should have been a higher draft pick. I mean, I I can think back to a guy like an Antoine Bethay out of Howard, six round draft pick. He comes into camp, he's immediately the starting strong safety for the Colts. And as a matter of fact, throughout the course of his career, in all the games he played and went on in that year, that rookie year to help the Colts to win a Super Bowl, throughout the course of his career. He, he didn't start eight games. He started all but eight games throughout the course of his outstanding career. I'm talking about Antoine Bethea. But, again, congratulations, Joshua Williams. Fourth round, 135th pick overall by Kansas City. South Carolina State cornerback, Kobe Durant, also fourth round, 142nd overall by the Rams. Jackson State linebacker, James Houston. Sixth round pick, 217th overall by the Lions. And Southern offensive lineman Jatiree Carter, seventh round pick, 226th 
overall by the Bears. So those players were selected. Meanwhile, as of Tuesday, and I hadn't even had a chance to count the number of HBCU players that have been that have signed either free agent deals or have had rookie invites to camp. There were 18 as of Tuesday. By the way, you're looking at a Quill Glass who wasn't drafted, wasn't invited to the NFL Combine either, but should have put on a a, a, a good performance at the um, at the NFL PA Collegiate Bowl. Uh, you look at also Marquise Bell, the safety out of Florida A&M, great size, had all the measurables, and still was not drafted, had to sign a free agent contract with the Cowboys. So that's a travesty in of itself that those two players weren't drafted. And now you have, again, as of Tuesday, 18 players. And I think of those 18, 15 or 16 of those players were actual undrafted free agent signees opposed to being invited to a camp. And so you may ask the question, Right. Well, don't you control more of your own destiny when you're when you sign as an undrafted free agent as opposed to being a late round pick? And when I say late round pick, I mean more like a more like a a, a sixth or seventh round pick. Well, I mean, that's true. There's a there is truth to that. No question about it right you control more of your own destiny in other words if a team picks you you're you know you don't have much you don't have any many options unless that team cuts you and then you can go to another team that team you know controls your rights you you know maybe you go to a team I mean I'll give you a a, a situation like a Mac McCain who signed as a, a free agent last year with the Broncos I think one of the reasons he signed with the Broncos because they gave him more money uh, to sign, but that was a crowded backfield. I mean, you look at the Broncos, and that's not to say that he couldn't make that team, but for an undrafted guy to try to make a team like that with that type of defensive backfield is an uphill battle. Now, ultimately, he was able to sign on um, with the Saints. I'm not sure where he is right now. He may still be with the Saints. Didn't check on that, but I mean, that was a crowded backfield, but they gave him a little bit more money. But think if he had gotten drafted in that situation, right? It's more guaranteed money when a team drafts you. Let me give you an example, right? The lowest player selected in the draft will receive just over $77,000, okay, as a signing bonus. $77,000 as a signing bonus, the lowest person drafted. In other words, Mr. Irrelevant. And I think that 77,000 is in a range of maybe the last five players that are drafted in the NFL draft. Okay. Now, that's $77,000. Now, compare that with a Joshua Williams, for example. His signing bonus is going to be somewhere between $666,000 and $800,000. So, the high, obviously, the higher you get drafted, the more money that you're going to make. But let's compare that to, and let's not even talk about Joshua Williams' situation, right? Hired round draft pick, more guaranteed money in terms of the signing bonus, okay? But let's look at, 
a guy, let's just take the guy that maybe Mr. Irrelevant, right? It's going to get $77,000 in bonuses. But if you sign as an undrafted free agent, first of all, teams are able to spend no more, uh, are able to give no more than 100, can give more, excuse me, let me get this right, can give more than $160,000, but less than $200,000 to sign all of its free agents. So if you're talking about 10 undrafted free agents signing, that's an average of each of those players making between sixteen dollars and $20,000. Again, that's on average because some of those players are going to make more. Some of those players are going to make less than the $16,000. So you see the discrepancy there between a guy that gets drafted, even if he's the last draft choice, that's a that's $77,000 compared to a guy who doesn't get drafted. Depends on how many guys that sign. But based upon that scenario, on the average, if there are 10 players and the, the range is between $160,000 and two hundred, that's an average of $16,000 to uh, between $16,000 and $20,000. It is a huge discrepancy. And again, I'm going to go back to the point that 40% of players in the National Football League, 40% of players in the National Football League that played at HBCUs were signed as undrafted free agents. Yes, you have Javon Hargrave. Yes, you have Darius Leonard. Yes, you have Teron Armstead. Yes, you have Tariq Cohen, and the list goes on and on. But you also have those players, 40% of them, that were undrafted or signed as undrafted free agents that were on opening day rosters to start the 2021 season. Up next here on Box to Row, we're going to be joined by Alabama State head baseball coach Jose Vasquez. Donald Ware on ESPNU Radio, right here on Sirius XM. Jose Vasquez is in his sixth season as the head baseball coach at Alabama State. The Hornets have a big matchup, big matchup this weekend as the Hornets are going to be in Tallahassee taking on Florida A&M, the SWAC's Eastern Division lead on the line as Coach Vasquez joins us here on Box to Row. Coach Vasquez, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you. I think last time we talked, it was a couple of years ago, right before COVID hit. You guys were rolling 14-4 and four at that time and really looking to build something uh, special. But I want to get your thoughts on where the Hornets sit right now, 24-18 and 18 overall in the, on the season, 15-4 and four in SWAC play. Well, you know, it's been a, a season that uh, a lot of lot of learning uh, for me. You know, uh, this I can tell you a few things that have changed. Uh, they typically happen. Every coach goes through this. The the lineup that we started at the beginning of the year, the rotation that started at the beginning of the year is definitely not the one that that we had over the last few weekends. Some some changes. Some some guys. You know, some injuries. 
and things of that nature. But we, you know, we like the, in the position that we are right now. We are uh, giving ourselves a chance every time we step on the field. Um, you know, uh, I got a group that is a resilient group. I got a group that wants to win. I got a group that is, has been working really hard. And I think, uh, you know, going, going back to what I said at the beginning, I think I found a lineup that has been pretty consistent. And, and we have guys that are stepping up and competing for us on the mound. And, and we're just looking forward to, to finish the, the rest of the season. We have a few games in conference. We have a few midweek games. We're just looking to, to finish strong, you know, the rest of the way until we get to the conference tournament. You know, you had a nice uh, series win over UT Martin. As I kind of look at the schedule, a couple of heartbreaking losses where you were able to sweep St. Bonaventure uh, this year. Boy, you've lost a, quite a few one-run games, in, especially, and it was interesting, especially in state, UAB, uh, Sanford. But, I mean, I, I guess even with those losses, what, what do you kind of learn from some of those kinds of, of losses, especially that perhaps can help you in conference play? I think you learn about your team, you know, and, and sometimes even though the outcome uh, does not go your way and losses like that, I think you learn that you have a good team, that you have a team that is ready to compete uh, day in and day out. You you learn about how your team can actually be, you know, against anybody in the nation and still uh, once again, be, be in the game. So I learned a lot from those those games. Uh, my staff learns a lot from those games. Is uh, obviously you want the outcome to 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 be a good one and and be a win. But you know, as, as they say, sometimes you don't you you learn more from your losses than you do when you win. And when we have covered some things, and I think that has losing some games like that early in the year, tough games, you know, uh, one run games. I think it has prepared us and, and, and continue to prepare us for for those games that we have played in conference that have been tough. And, and I think it shows the character of your team and hopefully uh, puts them in a situation in where those games are our close. It's not uh, it's not a surprise, you know. It's a, it's a situation where you've been there, been there before and you can uh, stay relaxed, stay calm, and at the same time stay focused on what the task is that is uh, ahead, and, and I think that's what those are the things that you learn from those games. We know the state of Alabama is uh, is outstanding. Uh, obviously, not only our conference, but I'm talking about the Sanford, Detroit, the Auburn, Alabama, uh, UAB, uh, South Alabama, all those teams we played. And uh, once again, uh, very competitive games, and, and it's, uh, it's a state that uh, definitely has uh, put a lot of emphasis in baseball and including us. So we're very proud of what we're doing and how we're representing our university. And, you know, we're, we're going to try to continue to do that. Jose Vasquez in his sixth season as the head baseball coach at Alabama State joins us here on Box Throw. It's interesting. And we'll talk more. I mean, I talk about preparing for swag play. But, boy, the swag is tough. You've had Florida A&M's uh, number, but it's going to be a tough, obviously, matchup. Uh, this weekend, um, Auburn. Now you lost to you lost to Auburn by. Have you played Auburn twice this year? We did. Yeah, yeah. we we lost to them early earlier in the year, and then we lost not too long ago. We we had them on the ropes, and we ended up losing the game in extra innings. You know, we were actually up with two outs, uh, bases loaded, and the in the bottom of the ninth, and you know we just couldn't close it out. Um, but 
once again, we, we that's what I ask. That's what I preach. You know, I want to every time that we step on the field, I want to have an opportunity to to be in the game. I want to be able to compete, and I want to be able to to know that this team is gonna you know give me uh, their best, and that's what they have done. Got a lot of trust in these guys, and sometimes we we have played really good baseball, and and obviously the outcome has been in our way. Sometimes we have played just okay, and we still right there uh very close to to you know to getting a, a w so you know we it's at this point of the year when and i think uh i know my team pretty good i know what i have i know what the things that we can do the guys know what we have and they, what they can do so i think that's a good combination and we just got to keep pushing and trying to be consistent for the last few weeks i, I know it had to be tough you're you're bethune cookman Grant, I know it had to be tough early in the year. Go to Bethune Cookman to and lose two of three, but you bounced back from that just a just last week. As a matter of fact, to take two of three uh, from Bethune Cookman, and I mentioned you know some of these midweek games and these non-conference games. But I mean, you look at the lights of a Bethune Cookman. You got Florida A and M this weekend. Jackson State's really good. Some good baseball in the SWAC, also and obviously. But speak to coming back and taking two of three from Bethune Cookman last weekend. You know, the the first time that we went down, uh, it was a, a little bit uh, surreal. You know, being in the area, uh, a place that brought. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, so much joy to to me and my family. My two daughters were born in Daytona. Uh, you know, my entire staff. Uh, you know, we're we're all Bethune Cookman alums, so it was uh, fun. At the same time, we just reminiscent of some of the good good days that we had uh, representing you know Bethune Cookman at the time. So yeah, it was a little tough, you know, to go out there and and you know Bethune Cookman has a, has a very good team, a very dangerous team, a team that can that can pitch, that can defend, and uh, a team that is going to be uh, obviously very tough to to deal with uh, later in the tournament. So we, you know, we play, we left a lot of guys on base in that series. We, we struck out quite a bit, and, you know, we, we didn't make an adjustment, I guess, early enough, and they, they got us two out of three. And then when we had them the other day, you know, we were able to make those adjustments. We, we had two uh, come-from-behind uh, wins, and, and uh, we just just play better, you know. We play better. We were the energy was was up, and obviously we, you know, playing at home is uh, it definitely helps. But they got a good club, and but so do we, you know. So we were able to pull that series off. But it's uh, you know when you play your alma mater, obviously you you once again you start thinking about all the good good days and and all the good memories, all the championships that we won, and and uh, you know what we were able to do for that program. But it was some something that. Uh, it was a little different, but obviously now the focus is to to every time that we face them, you know, try to actually uh, win that game. Jose Vasquez is the head baseball coach at Alabama State, joins us here on the program. Your kid, Corey King, has got some unbelievable numbers. I mean, he's batting 349 on the season, but he's got, also got 10 home runs to boot, 44 RBI. He's slugging 605. Speak to really his play and what he's been able to provide offensively for this team? Well, you know, uh, Corey is, uh, first of all, an outstanding young man, a guy that that has, you know, came in here, has a great attitude about the game, knows the game. He, he's always learning, but he's a guy that is, is uh, you know, junior college transfer, 
um, outstanding swing. You know, the ball comes out uh, of the bat really good. But I think the knowledge of the game is what uh, allows uh, for this whole thing to just kind of to for him to do what he's doing. You know, he, he studies the game. He's one of those guys that is always talking baseball. So I'm very happy about what's happening with him. But it, he's, uh, his at-bats are, are very competitive all the time. There's a lot of loud outs, you know, when he gets out. Uh, and obviously he has the ability to, to hit the home run, which is, uh, you know, he's leading the team. And I think he's one of the, the – the, I think he's top three or top five in the conference. So we're very happy that he's doing that for us, you know, put him in the leadoff spot and he – you know, he um, obviously gets the, the most at-bats that, that anybody can get throughout the game. So I'm hoping that he can continue to 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 be competitive like he has been, and, and hopefully we can put him in situations where he can have people on base and, and be able to drive some runs. You've got some solid pitching. I mean, you look at Pooler, who's 7 and will bring on Pooler 7-1 on the season, um, Adele Melendez, uh, oh no! Excuse me. Austin King and um, Osvaldo Mendez are are guys that probably are going to start for you this weekend against Florida A and M. Well, when those three names that you mentioned, and I think uh, one time one thing that I can tell you about uh, college baseball, and even though this this young men are, you know, you're talking about eighteen to twenty two year olds, sometimes twenty three. Um, you're talking about this. These guys have the experience. You talk about a Brion Puller that is, uh, you know, fifth-year senior. You're talking about Osvaldo Mendez, which is uh, baseball-wise, he's a junior, but he's really a senior. He's been in school. Those and then Austin King, uh, fifth-year senior as well. So, so we're talking about guys that have done it before, and I think at our level that plays a, a huge role into, you know, getting getting prepared, knowing what to expect. Uh, not letting your highs get too high, lows get too low, and, and those guys know how to prepare themselves mentally and prepare their body for not only the first few weekends of the seasons, uh, but for where we are right now. You know, trying to stay healthy because it's, it's a long season, it's a lot of innings, it's a lot of uh, the workload is is pretty big. You know, obviously student athletes having to do everything in the classroom and still being able to compete, um, you know, on the field for us. But yeah. I think that that's the key. Uh, those guys are, you know, very competitive, and and they know what they need to do for us to, you know, to be productive and to be good. And you know, the old cliche: you have to be able to play defense, you have to be able to pitch, and and uh, the reality of baseball is that, you know. And so far, we have been able to compete on the mound. We're hoping that we can compete this weekend. We have our hands full against uh, Florida A&M, and. Once again, uh, I'm very happy with what they're doing, and, and it all starts with the pitching and the defense. Um, last two thoughts, Coach. We appreciate the time. Florida A&M, you, you've had their number, right? You've beat them four times this year. Early on was the Classic in New Orleans where you were able to beat them, uh, and then you won three uh, conference games. But but the, but FAM's right there with you in the East. What makes FAM you so tough? Well, the, first of all, the respect that I have for for the coaching staff, you know, Coach Shoup, uh, obviously his years of experience. We we did come out on top on the t- on the games that we played, uh, but we always knew how good they were. You know, obviously somebody has to win the games, somebody has to lose. Uh, we we found ways to win the games that we have played against them. 
uh, that doesn't take away the the fact that I mean uh, that they are really good. They have they have the pitching. They have some relievers. They have guys in the lineup that can they can hit the ball out, uh, and they're very athletic. So you know we we definitely know that we have our hands full this weekend. They're gonna you know everybody's playing for something, so it's gonna be I think a very competitive series. And let's see what happens. You know we're ready. We you know we. Uh, continue to preparing for once again for not only this weekend but for the rest of the season and the tournament. And I know they are, you know, uh, have gotten better. They're playing good baseball, and and we know that it's going to be very competitive. And you know, it's just good for for everybody. It's good for the conference. I'm very happy that they joined, you know, the SWAC and along with Bethune Cookman, it has made our conference, uh, in my opinion, a baseball conference. I think the respect that we are getting not only uh, in our different states, but I think nationally with the brand of baseball that we're putting out there is something that is benefiting our universities and, and hopefully can continue to stay like that. And then last thought, how – again, you were 14-4 and four a couple of years ago. I mean, it's hard to tell actually what would have happened, but you played some really good baseball. How do you compare this team to the 2020 team? You know what? Uh, comparing it, I think that at that point we were similar into where we had a little bit of the the experience, you know, in the lineup guys that were JUCO guys uh, that ended up, you know, someone graduating this past year or getting the year back, and then, and I think that we felt at that point that that was an experienced team, and the same feeling that I have right now, we we have some experience. It's just like like I explained before. That comes into play. That comes into play, and you see it. You know, you it's very hard to win a, at this level when the majority of your roster, you know, when it's freshman and sophomore and guys that are that are still kind of getting acclimated to to what college baseball is about in certain uh, situations that the game uh, brings to you. So, uh, I think that those are the similarities. You know, obviously the the pitching has been very was very competitive at that time. And that's something that has been, you know, uh, good for us so far. So, uh, you know, when you're able to do that, you're going to you're gonna find yourself in games. And some of them are going to go your way. Some of them are going to go the other way. But I think when you can pitch and when you can play defense, that's the key to, to you know, to finding a way to, to win games. Jose Vasquez, the head baseball coach at Alabama State, joins us here. On box to row, the Hornets on the road this weekend in Tallahassee taking on Florida A&M. First place in the SWAC's Eastern Division is on the line. Coach Vasquez, appreciate the time. Continued success to you and the Hornets. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You know that, uh, you know, anytime that you need us, we're available. And, and thank you for everything that you do for college baseball. Thank you, Coach Vasquez. We'll be back. So the MIAC sent out another release, and this has got to be the third, perhaps fourth release, maybe in the last mm, almost, eh, almost two years now, I guess, or so, that uh, the MIAC has sent out a release that in essence states, and it has quotes from the chancellors and presidents of the respective, well, some of the chancellors and presidents 
of the respective universities that the MEAC is aligned in its values. It's going to continue to move forward and that no schools of what the MEAC or what the release called the Elite Eight, which is which is cool. I mean, that's that's cool, um, are not going anywhere uh, in terms of leaving conferences. Now, there's been a couple of things that have happened or reported on uh, that have happened. And one of the things I, I you know, so it, it was Howard was supposedly going to the CAA, much like uh, what A&T did here more recently. And I mean, I, I'm and when people ask me this question about Howard and then, you know, state as fact that, yeah, Howard is leaving to go to the CAA for me. You have to look at the history. I think you just have to look at the history of, of, of things sometime, but also the president is present as well. Number one, or not not number one, but one of the things is that uh, President Frederick at Howard is actually the he's the chair of the chancellors. I think he's still the chair of the chancellors and the presidents of the MEAC. Okay, and so uh, and he's the president of Howard, and if he continues to in each each one of these type of united we're united it's us against the world type of releases that has come out and one came out um, very shortly after bethune cookman in florida a&m left i mean i mean that's just not that's one thing right now that's not to say that maybe there weren't some discussions between howard and the caa president frederick is retiring in 2024 but i mean i you know, I just don't think when these releases come out and he's in the, the, he, the man, a man of that stature in the position he's in um, is th- that that Howard is going to make that move. But then in the same breath, just months earlier, say we're united. Right. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. Doesn't mean there weren't discussions. The other thing, the, another thing is this. With respect to Howard, I mean, Howard to me is not as serious about athletics as it is about its other programs. Now, all schools are like that and all schools should think like that. It's just that some schools are are much more serious. I just don't think Howard's that serious about athletics to make a move to the CAA. Now, with that being said, I think some of the principles of Howard from an academic standpoint, purely academics, has nothing to do with black and white, just purely academics, may align more with schools in the CAA, again, to include Hampton and North Carolina A&T. But I think there would be, and, and maybe there were some discussions, right, between the CAA and Howard. I think there would be backlash, that would be so severe from alumni of Howard if Howard moved to the CAA. Howard has such a legacy and uh, such pride about Howard University for Howard to move to a predominantly white conference. I don't think that's going to fly. I mean, if I had to say, I just don't think that's going to fly. Now, there may be some that think that would be a good move. Obviously, you you know, and then, I mean, again, this it, whenever you talk about these kind of moves, 
generally speaking, at this level, now when you look at the SEC, I mean, you look at a Texas and an Oklahoma moving from the Big 12 to the SEC, that's about athletics, that's about money, right? But on the smaller scale, especially in the FCS scale, right, that's more about, you know, A&T's move is, it was about, you know, was an acad- was acad- academic, uh, more than it was from an athletic standpoint. I get it, the student-athlete welfare, they save money and all that. But now, you know, A&T is the largest HBCU. Now, now when you move to, you know, you move out of the MEAC, you move first to the Big South and now to the CAA, which is very, very good athletically, especially in football, at least reputation-wise. I know some teams have left. Now you're talking about being able to recruit from a more broad pool for people to come to your univer to your university and not necessarily black students that come to the university. I mean, that's, that's good business, right? Like you can be an HBCU and still be a traditional, uh, if you will, HBCU, HBCU of course stands for historically black college and university, right? So you can still be that and, and have a, a good amount of students that are not Black, it doesn't change who you are. It doesn't change the history of why these schools were even started. So um, um, that's that's fine. And I think for Howard, if Howard were to make a but 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 I should say, if Howard were to make a move like that, and you think about the history of Howard and all the great people. It's not to say great people haven't come from other universities. Not to say. Greatness hasn't come from A&T or greatness hasn't come from Hampton. But if you're a Howard and you make that move, and I'd like to hear from some Howard alums about this. Hit me up. This is just my theory, right? Like I, I haven't really talked to a lot of Howard alums about it per se. This is just my theory from how I've seen Howard operate and move over the years. I mean, remember they had the book voucher scandal Going back to what was that, 2012, maybe 2010, something like that, the university shut athletics down because of that. Because Howard trying to protect its brand overall, that Howard brand is an international brand, and it's, they don't, they're, you know, athletics is cool, but it's not more important, not that any, it is at any other school. But it's much less important than some of, you know, the, 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 the programs and the disciplines that Howard has. So they shut athletics down. In other words, when you shut athletics down, you're, you're, in essence, what Howard did was separate itself as a university from its athletic program. I look at those kind of things. You look at, you know, the academic rigors and, 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 and of, of what it takes to get into a Howard University. Why the football program hasn't been good for many, many years? Well, it hasn't been because it's hard. It's like, it's like Duke football. It's like if I if I was to make a comparison, I would compare Howard to Duke. Duke's academic rigors and to be able to get into a Duke to play football, man, it's high. It, it is off. It, it is hard to get into Duke. It's hard to get into Howard. I will believe it when Howard University. <laughs> releases a a press release that says the university <laughs> has moved to the CAA or whatever other conference it is. I think, you know, 
is the Miak holding on? And that's just Howard. So that, you know, that's just one aspect of Howard because a lot of talk had been about Howard joining the CAA. And again, maybe this is why that was released because ultimately it didn't happen. So now you can come back as a conference and say, hey, we're united. But it doesn't mean that Howard and the CAA didn't have conversation. But back in the day, Morgan was that school too. So I, I, I don't think the MIAC is going anywhere anytime soon. I think the conference is financially solvent, I th- and, and that's always good. Uh, you can look at all of, you know, all of the talk and Bethune leaving the conference, Florida A&M leaving the conference, A&T leaving the conference. But that win by South Carolina State against Jackson State in the Celebration Bowl was huge. By the way, you still have six football playing institutions. The, the MIAC doesn't even have an automatic bid to the uh, to the FCS playoffs anyway because it chooses to play in the Celebration Bowl. And of course, the MIAC still has its automatic berth to the Division I men's basketball tournament. So I, I just, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I guess for me, I... I you know, if the MEAC feels like it has to put out a release and it has to kind of quell some of the rumors or some of the talk and all of that kind of stuff, which the MEAC has kind of done anyway, then I can understand that. But, you know, as of right now, I just don't see uh, any any teams or any schools leaving the MEAC. We can take this conversation offline on Twitter. Hit me up at Box Row or on my personal Twitter account at DWare1. Thank you to Alabama State head baseball coach, Jose Vasquez for joining us on the program for more information. If you've missed any of our shows, log on to our website, box And always remember to support those that support your box to row on ESPN. U radio. I'm Sirius XM is produced by DW communications. So back at the time, I never thought I'd see a face. Ain't a woman alive that could take my mama's place. Spending from school, I'm scared to go home. I was a fool.